This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The United States incarceration rate is higher than in any other country in the world. Six out of every 1,000 Americans are in jail. Many political leaders now recognize that the long prison sentences mandated by legislation in the late 20th century has been counterproductive, and a reform bill in the last session of Congress almost passed. But what about the days and years people actually spend in jail? Hundreds of thousands of lives are being wasted on meaningless activities by people serving their time. What can be done to make that time more productive? Can prisons be opportunities to gain an education that will make it easier for them to return to society and contribute to the community? Gerard Robinson, executive director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity, has brought together ideas and analyses by some of the most uh, thoughtful observers of prison education in the United States in his new book, Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons, which he has edited with Elizabeth English Smith. And I'm pleased today to have Gerard Robinson with me on the Education Exchange. Gerard, thank you for joining me. So this is a terrific collection of essays you brought together. Tell me why you and Elizabeth Smith decided to, uh, uh, to, to produce this volume. Let's go back to the fall of 2015. Elizabeth and I are working at the American Institute. Freddie Gray, a young man who died in Baltimore, had led to not only protest in that city, but it raised questions nationwide about the relationship between the community and the police. Elizabeth, myself, and another gentleman who worked at AEI named Sean Kennedy were in the hallway uh, one day having a conversation. And what we realized are two things. Number one, all of us had been involved in criminal justice reform before we arrived at AEI. And number two, we believe that it was important for conservatives, Republicans, and those right of center to have a voice in the national conversation about criminal justice reform. And that led to us uh, hosting a conference with the University of Baltimore. It resulted in us in hosting a couple of working groups. And as life would have it, we ended up uh, deciding to put together a book of 10 chapters to be a part of the national conversation in 2019. So uh, what percentage of prisoners are actually uh, involved in some form of education? What's, is, it, is it just a tiny percentage? or uh, Give me a feel for the size of the uh, educational endeavor within our prisons. Well, at the macro level, we have 2.3 million people who are incarcerated throughout the United States. The vast majority of the 2.3 million are in state prisons. Uh, how many are educated across the board? You know, I've seen a number that said at least 50% receive adult basic education, uh, and that's for people who arrive to prison either without a high school diploma or GED. And so you have states like Maryland, who a couple of years ago decided that if you arrive in a Maryland prison and you don't have a high school diploma, guess what? You're going to roll into a GED program. We find something similar in Oklahoma. But there are three other types of education programs. Uh, number one is adult secondary education, uh, and that's where you're going to get your GED, your high school diploma. Adult-based education is really to help people build their literacy skills. But two that we focus 
in the book focus really on what we call um, technical education, and that often takes place not only at a high school, but at a community college. Someone will learn a trade, a certificate. Uh, that's probably a population, some would say, around 25%. But the smallest percent of people who are incarcerated are the ones enrolled in post-secondary education programs. This is where they'll earn a bachelor's degree, be it science or art. And so depending upon what level you look at, it varies, but the vast majority of people are adult basic education and adult secondary education. So I, I can understand why... Uh the uh, GED program or secondary education programs are the most extensive, but why aren't states doing more to uh, enable students to uh, enroll in uh, higher education programs? Well, up until 1994, we had approximately 30,000 people who were enrolled in post-secondary education programs with the use of a Pell Grant. Uh, but that all came to an end uh, when President Bill Clinton signed into law uh, the first real strong federal criminal justice law, which basically said if you're incarcerated, you don't have access to a Pell Grant. Now, you as an education historian and political scientist uh, know very well that in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Higher Education Act of 1965. And from 65 up to 1994, uh, the federal government had invested money into adults who were incarcerated throughout the United States to gain access to post-secondary education, community college, as well as four-year degree-granting institutions. Once the 1994 law went into effect and it had support from both the left and the right, uh, you had, within a few years, over 700 schools uh, that offered post-secondary education, deciding not to. And so really from the mid-90s up until up until Obama decided to support the Second Chance Pell Initiative, it was primarily privately funded initiatives, Bard College, for example, Patton University, in fact, in California where you are, uh, who decided to do so. So there was a point where we did, but for a host of reasons, we decided to stop, and now... Uh, under the Trump administration, really beginning with uh, the uh, Obama administration, the conversation's back on the table. So what was the thinking in the Clinton administration and in Congress that actually led to this uh, retreat from a higher education for prisoners? Well, there are really three things. Uh, number one, if you committed a crime, you've got to do the time. And so part of it was, part of your punishment is you're going to prison. Whether you get education or not is not important. Number two, there were some who believed education was more a privilege than a right, and that you forfeited uh, that privilege when you committed a crime and went to prison. A third is money. Uh, there were some who said that if Gerard's in prison and receives a Pell Grant, he's going to take money away from Kimberly, who's a good standing, uh, good upstanding citizen who's not going to get a Pell Grant. So between money, uh, losing the privilege, and uh, tough on crime, there are a few people who simply say well, the government shouldn't be fun we shouldn't fund this. And so they got enough votes to get on the left and the right, passed the law, and that pretty much put an end to what we knew as the Pell Grant program in uh, prisons. So with the Obama legislation, have we gone back to the period 
before uh, the, the the Clinton administration uh, 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 signed that bill into law? Well, partially. I mean, you know, when you think about the, the Pell Grant and the state block grant going back to 72 forward, again, the federal government had invested millions of dollars into education. Roughly 30,000 were enrolled in prison using a Pell Grant, and it was a you know very, very small percentage of the total. Um, well, around 1992, there were changes to the federal law, which said that if you were serving a life sentence without parole, uh, or if you were in there for a sex offense, you couldn't qualify for a Pell Grant. Other than that, you could. Well, by the time we moved to 1994, just across the board, people could not. In 2015, President Obama, who in fact is the first sitting president to ever visit a uh, prison, he said, well, you know, I have power uh, through a regulatory agency to experiment with programs. And so his Department of Education decided to create the Second Chance Pell Initiative. They put out an RFP. Over 200 post-secondary institutions across the country applied. By 2016, 67 were selected. And these 67 either offered a four-year degree, a two-year degree, or a certificate. Some have been somewhere involved in offering uh, incarcerated men and women access to education beforehand. Some were new. And so where we are right now is, according to the law, you have to be within five years of release to participate. Um, you've got to be in good standing. Some states take liberty to take people who maybe two or three years versus five, but it varies. So we're not where we were pre-94, but we're surely further than we were 95 to 2015. So you include in your book some great examples of prisoners who have had their t lives transformed by being able to study and acquire uh, a high school diploma or a college degree. They're, they're marvelous human stories that open our eyes to what education can accomplish. Uh, but um, are these exceptional cases? Uh, do we have any evidence that uh, learning in prison actually pays off in a, in, in a, in a broader sense and not just for a, a few instances? Chapter 10 in the book is titled Student Voices. Uh, we have the voices of five people who at one time or another were incarcerated. Uh, some actually wrote their essays during incarceration, other, others uh, after they were out. And they're great stories. Uh, some people believe they're a unicorn. Uh, in fact, they're not. Uh, these are five stories of probably 5,000 stories or even 50,000 stories of people who said their lives have been changed. Now, as two social scientists, the question we must ask, you know, what does the literature tell us? Well, we know from a RAND study uh, that was published several years ago, there's a fact there's a follow-up that, that was produced recently, uh, for every dollar that correctional institutions invest into the education of incarcerated, we receive nearly a $5 return on investment. Now, that investment, when we say education, is both adult basic education and upwards. We also know from one of my AEI colleagues um, who runs the research division at, uh, at, a, at the uh, Minnesota State Correctional Facility that uh, the people who participated uh, in that program, where there is some education, also including workforce, because we're not just saying degrees alone. Education also for a job, but there's been uh, uh, some positive results on reducing recidivism, uh, which is the number of people who leave prison and come back, but also um, some uh, points on self 
self-awareness, self-efficacy. We also see similar results for women in the state of New York who didn't finish a program. They identified if you were enrolled, uh, that was a strong part. Now, there's other research to show there's little to no impact, but as you and I both know, uh, research design matters a lot, but so does implementation. And that's where I'm glad to have um, Chapter 4 in our book from Nancy Levine, who's a scholar at Urban. Her chapter is titled Reentry Program, Evaluation Methods, and the Importance of Fidelity. Because simply having a program means nothing if it's not implemented. So there's both anecdotal and research based evidence to show that it's making a difference, but we still have challenges. Well, if you were going to pick the two best programs in the country, what, what two would you give me? Well, I'd pick two where I've had at least some experience. So I'd start with the Prison uh, Entrepreneurship Program in Texas. Uh, it's a program that I had a chance to visit a few years ago. In fact, the president of the organization spoke at my conference in April. It's an organization created by a number of business leaders in the Houston area who said, let's be very clear. We know nationally 95% of the people who are incarcerated will one day come back to our communities. And at a national level, nearly 650,000 people uh, leave prison every year. To put that in perspective, that's roughly the size of the city of Memphis. A lot of those people are coming back to Harris County where Houston is located. And the question is, what are they going to do to prepare them to get a job? A lot of men and women who pay their dues to society uh, still have this part of letter F for felon. And it makes it tough for people to get jobs. We also know there's uh, thousands of licensing restrictions, restrictions on people who have a felony. So they said, tell you what, we're going to start working initially with men and have a program for women, but we're going to start working with men who are incarcerated to prepare them to leave. So they do three things. Number one, they put them through a three-month program where the men have to acknowledge who they are, what they've done, and how they want to change. The next three months are spent learning how to put together a business plan, how to put together a marketing plan, how to put together an idea that they can sell. And then the next three months are honing that, which also includes making a pitch to a group of people. The businesses range from carpentry to real estate to uh, working with uh, horses, uh, those who are in the equestrian field. And here are two things that were pretty surprising to me. Number one, the job placement rate for the graduates of this program in the first six months is 100%. That's pretty good. Well, do they really keep their jobs? So that's the question, Gerard. It, the, they, they get a job, but do they keep the job? Great question. After the six months, 7% have recidivated over time compared to over 40% statewide. Not only have many of them able to keep the job, but they've been able to grow their business by hiring former men who were either in their facility or who were incarcerated. There's a guy named Manny, for example. He spoke at a conference I had sponsored with the University of Baltimore. Uh, he grosses over a million dollars a year through his construction. He's steadily hiring people to work. There's also people who are making 4000 5000 a month or less to take care of themselves. So those numbers are pointing in the right place. I get a job plus I have a certificate from um, Baylor University. I think another program I'd look at is in your uh, neck of the woods in Northern California. It's called The Last Mile. It's a program that teaches uh, men and women who are incarcerated coding skills. 
world and coding, coders make a lot of money. But again, if you're a coder, I have no idea if you have a felony. I can't see you. Um, and so they put together the program. Got a chance to visit you know, some of the people who were in it. And you know, Chan Zuckerberg of the Zuckerberg Initiative hired one of the graduates of that program, who's making six figures. So that's another program that's giving people a real skill that's marketable in high demand. And because there's at least for most people, no face to face. Um, it's a way for them to get a job without having to deal with some of the restrictions that come along with where you live and who you are. Well, one it, actually, you you mentioned this, uh, f- uh, Facebook here. It, it brings to my mind uh, online learning that which is now possible in ways that were we, we, we didn't really have ten years ago. So it can which can really reduce the cost of higher education uh, uh, being made available to people in prisons. Because I understand why. Uh, some taxpayers might be reluctant to pay for the education of, of prisoners uh, when other people are being asked to pay for higher education out of their own pockets. But if you go online, you can you can serve a population that was never served in the past. Have you looked at that, uh, the extent to what that's being done and whether or not that's in any way successful? The question you raised with me is something I shared personally with President Obama uh, in a meeting, I believe, in October uh, 2016, when he gathered about 50 people uh, at the White House to have a conversation. I was uh, fortunate to be invited. He went around the room, and when he got to me, I said, first of all, thank you for your interest in prison justice reform. Uh, Valerie Jarrett, his special advisor, was also there. She had recently visited San Quentin Prison. Uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, I was on the board at that time of a college that awarded associate degrees to incarcerated men who were part of the prison uh, university project uh, run by Judy uh, Lewis. And she thought the program was great. And I said, Mr. President, you know, we're helping, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, let's say 100 men, and that's great. But we could probably help 1,000 men if we could have access to online learning for both reducing the cost, but also reaching more people over time. Uh, as you know, there are concerns about giving uh, incarcerated men and women access to the Internet, either for fear they will use it to go after people they victimize, uh, to make threats or other things, or not having access uh, to porn or other adult materials. Uh, and so he listened and other people agreed. There's some states who are making some modifications to their a policy as it relates to the internet or intranet to get people access. But one entrepreneur, her name is Artie Finn. She is a VP at the American Prison Data System. She actually loads all of the material onto a handheld device, gives it to a correctional officer, gives it to an incarcerated person, and they can actually take courses online using that handheld device. And one of the programs that she's doing this with is Wiley College in Texas. It's one of our historically black colleges and universities. And that's one way of, A, reducing costs, B, showing states that there are interesting ways of working with internet, intranet. But the day that we open it up for online learning, I think we're going to be able to reach over you know 1.5 million people. Well, thank you, Gerard, for sharing uh, the some of the highlights of your really fascinating collection of essays on education for liberation, the politics of promise and reform inside and beyond American prisons.
I have been speaking with Gerard Robinson, executive director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity and editor of this new book, along with Elizabeth Smith. Uh, thank you, Gerard, for joining me. Well, Paul, thank you for having me, but also let me say thank you, because the work that you've done as relates to K-12 uh, school choice and reform in an interesting way is now bubbling up to the adult conversation because the children who are in our charter schools and other reform programs, a lot of their parents are incarcerated. Maybe now we can help them too. And thank you for the 20 plus year role you've played in making it possible for adults across the country. Well, thank you, uh, Gerard. I appreciate those comments. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.